Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. Your business was humming, but now you're falling behind. Your teams are buried in manual work, tasks are taking forever to complete, and getting one source of truth is like pulling teeth. If this is you, then you should know these three numbers, 37,000. That's the number of businesses that have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, streamlining accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. One, because your business is one of a kind. Get a customized solution for all your key performance indicators in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. With NetSuite, it's everything you need to grow, all in one place. Get your business back to the greatness where it belongs. Learn more at netsuite.com slash podcast 25. So I got a standing desk from Fully. And I will be honest, I didn't really expect it to make much of a difference in my life, but I absolutely love it. Um, I got just, uh, there's a small portable one that they sell and I put that up in my office kind of next to my desk. And what I've been doing and what I've found is that when I get restless or um, bored, going to the standing desk immediately refocuses me. I've also noticed I wear a Fitbit and I definitely am getting my steps per day faster, Um, less fewer hours, uh, fewer minutes um, on the treadmill. And I am just amazed at what it a difference the small thing has made. My husband got a full-sized Foley desk. He got the Jarvis standing desk, and he loves it too. And it's no wonder, really, because for four years now, the wire cutter has named Foley's Jarvis standing desk the best standing desk on the market. That said, standing desks really aren't about standing. They're about moving. Like I said, I get my steps per day so much faster now. And fully standing desks and collection of active chairs. Uh, John got one of those too, which is also very cool. It's called the TikTok. And it kind of rocks back and forth. And it gives you the freedom to sit, stand, stretch, squat, perch, or lean into a healthy, comfortable position that works your body's unique and changing needs. Just listen to your body and let it flow. Fully keeps your body moving. So you can feel more alive and engaged in your work and in your life with the perfect mix of modern design and healthy movement. And in fact, uh, the standing desk that I have, it's plywood. And where I put it in my office is behind my Eames lounger. And it fits right in. It is it is a uh, another piece of art in my office. And with iconic pieces like the Jarvis standing desk, the Capisco chair, and the Topo mat, Fully has helped people discover freedom in the workplace. Rigid sitting can contribute to negative health benefits. I've heard people compare it to the new smoking. Fully's desks and chairs relieve static loads on joints and ligaments while improving posture and circulation. Fully wants to make an active work life available to as many people as possible so their pieces are always affordable. From design to shipping to service, after your purchase, Fully is there for you every step of the way. 
So get your body moving in your workplace. Go to fully.com slash friends. That's F-U-L-L-Y dot com slash friends. Fully. Desks, chairs, and things to keep you moving. Hi, I'm Anna Marie Cox, and welcome to With Friends Like These, a show where we talk about the differences between us without letting them divide us. My guest this week is Kia Brown. Kia Brown came across my radar because of the hashtag disabled and cute. It's pretty much what it sounds like. And it was really cool to see it take off. She started it and she started it specifically to be inclusive across all kinds of identities. She wanted to include uh People who identify as male, people who identify as female, non-binary people, disabled people who have mobility issues, disabled people who are what we called the invisibly disabled. And it was such an affirming thing to see. I started to follow Kia in her writing, and she's just one of the most sensitive uh, and vulnerable and yet so strong Uh, people I have ever had the pleasure of getting to know through writing. I was really excited to have her on the show. To talk specifically about her experience as a disabled Black person, but also about ableism. Now, what is ableism? You probably can figure it out from the context. It is making assumptions about disabled people, about what they can and can't do. And I will be straight up with you. There is a moment in the conversation where I engage in some ableism. I just, I do. And we get through it, not not super gracefully, but okay, we get through it. But before you hit send on whatever email or tweet you're thinking about to criticize me, which I deserve, listen to the whole interview. Because I promise we come back around and talk about it some more in a way that, well, it was really incredibly useful for me. And I think it might be useful to a lot of you as well. And then stick around for something somewhat lighter, I guess. Aaron Ryan, who is a Cricket Media contributor, is going to join me to take on a listener question about how to deal with political disagreements in romantic relationships. But first, Kia Brown. Kia Brown is a writer, journalist, and disability rights activist. Her work has appeared in Cliché-Mag.com, ESPNW, Teen Vogue, and she has an essay collection, The Pretty One, due out in spring 2019. Welcome to the show, Kia. Thank you for having me. So I'm, I'm very excited to have you on, and I thought of a nice way to open would be to have you read from one of your essays, which is the reason I invited you on is I, I really, really love uh, some of the writing that you've done. So would, would you mind kicking us off? Sure, not a problem. This is a piece called Disabilities and Movies. Um, it was published in Catapult in around 2016. And here's a bit of it. On the DVD cases before me, the cover stars stand in an array of positions my body will never find itself. Their hands around their hips, challenging me. They laugh and gesture. Most are happy, clutching a co-star with a wide smile. Others are sad and pensive. Their hands are clasped neatly 
in front of them or placed behind their back. But it would take a while for me to get my right hand to cooperate long enough for me to put it behind my back. I cannot pull off the sexy and dangerous pout either. My black disabled body with its aching bones and bent fingers, a right leg that is an inch shorter than the left with its limp and limited motor skills is not the body reflected on screen. I fantasize about being able-bodied. I'd love to spend a week without having to pretend I don't see strangers so caught up in watching me limp that they nearly run into things. A week where my bones don't crack and I don't hold my breath while walking. I'd get out of bed and catch a glimpse of a right hand that looks exactly like my left. I'd walk without limping down the hall to my sister's room. After years spent in a body that gave out in college lecture halls, restaurants, and clothing stores, I'd be free of embarrassment. This body and I could do anything. Despite the erasure of my blackness and my disability, I cannot give up on the genre of films that supplied me with a chance to wish for a love I do not yet know if I deserve. Thank you so much. Thank you. I, I asked you to read that excerpt because it, it resonated on so many levels. Just I, I think it's a really lovely, like just lovely writing. And then I think you also talk about some things that make people uncomfortable. Indeed, um, you sort of talk about your own discomfort, right? Like your own uh, relationship to these movies not being a comfortable place. So I thought it'd be yes. a good place to start. But you also told me when I, I asked you if you'd be okay reading it, that your mind has changed a little bit you, since you wrote that piece. It has. Um, a lot can happen in a year or two. For me, when I wrote that piece, I was still struggling with accepting my body for what it is. Um, but since then, I've created a place for myself to feel good in my body. Um, when I wrote that piece, I was very uncomfortable existing in the world. And so now I feel like I live in a body that deserves love. Whereas when I wrote it, I was unsure that I did because of my body. But now I know, even with my body, that I do deserve to be loved. And I, I am curious about that journey, because that, that is quite a distance to go. It is. Um, well, a lot of it has to do with effort. I'm a big champion of effort. And so for me, um, at the tail end of 2016, I started to feel good about myself. And I think a lot of that had to do with um, me, you know, publishing in some really cool places, but also taking the time to say four things that I liked about myself every morning out loud as many times as it took for me to believe the things that I was saying. And so that translated into me, you know, doing it every single day and putting in the effort, but making sure that I believed what I was saying, even on the days when, you know, I wasn't wearing makeup or a cute outfit I was in some sweats and a ratty old T-shirt. <laughs> I, still, I still made it a point to say four things that I liked about myself. They weren't always the same four things, but they were things that helped me get through the day. Because there's, there's a definite journey involved, like in that piece when you're talking about you're not even sure if you deserve love, to a piece you wrote more recently about Stephen Hawking, uh, where you talk about how people, the ableism involved in people kind of thinking, I think they're doing something 
nice. I don't know. Yeah. The images of him out of his wheelchair, like as though in death he was relieved of his wheelchair. Um, yeah, and that's the thing, too. I think a lot of people in regard to that had good intentions, but to to free him of something that he needed while he was living on Earth and proceeded to do wonderful things for the country and the nation and the discoveries that he made, he made in his wheelchair. So I think to pretend as though it was this roadblock for him when he succeeded in the wheelchair was the issue for me. I think I just kept seeing people talk about how, you know, he was free of limitation now, but I think it's it sends a wrong message to the people who are still alive with, you know, ALS and people who are wheelchair users. It's saying like, oh, you should be excited to die so you can be free of your limitation. Like I just read really, um, like I said, ableist to me. And so I wanted to make sure that I kind of wrote about it. And you also sort of celebrated your own body a little bit in the piece about Stephen Hawking, right? I mean, you you, t- you talk about how it for, for well, you talked about for one thing how that that message of you have to be dead in order to be free of your wheelchair is something that people who are with disabilities get all the time, and I don't think people who are able-bodied understand that. No, it is something that you know I've heard a lot. People are like, oh, you know, well, with God you know, he frees us of these limitations. And people just assume that because you're disabled, you're constantly in pain. And you and you must hate being disabled and you must hate being in your body. But what happens is those sorts of messages help shape how we view disability. And those sorts of messages allow people to believe that what they're doing is helping. It's the same thing as like the magical cures and the people who send me messages about essential oils mm. and lotions and surgeries that can cure me of something that I'm just now learning to love and not have a problem with. But I think that had I been told that sort of thing via media when I was younger, maybe my mindset would have changed, you know, because I grew up in a very loving family who always treated me like I was you know, just one of the other kids. But when you see that in media, when it's being portrayed to you that, you know, you die at the end of every movie and you hate yourself, like, obviously you're going to take that to heart after seeing it for so many movies and so many TV shows and it being the sole purpose for disabled people to be kind of like the emotional arc of an able-bodied person. Like in that first essay that you read, you talk about fantasizing being without your wheelchair. And this is... A- I'm not a wheelchair user. Oh, but okay. I did- fantasize about being... Sorry. I am very sorry. You fantasize okay. about being able-bodied. Yeah. Right. And I did for a really long time. Um, not just, you know, like even before that essay was written, I wanted so badly to be what I thought was normal. Um, now I know that normal can be me in this body and can be any other disabled person in the world, that's what normal is. Normal is different for everybody, but it's still valued. But at the time, I thought the only value was in an able-bodied body. And so those sorts of messages that you see in media and online are the problem because they help feed into a culture that tells disabled people to hate themselves. And and that's because we assume that you would rather be otherwise. Yes, does that mean that you don't still wish for that? Um, not anymore. Okay. I'm going to be honest with you. I did for a really long time. 
And um, until I started sitting with myself and discovering things that I liked about my body, both physically and I liked about myself, you know, emotionally, and I liked about my personality, I thought that. But I don't feel the need to change my body just to make myself worthy of being alive because I think I'm worthy of being alive in this body. But it did take some work and real effort to feel good in my body. It wasn't an overnight thing. Right. That day-to-day effort part of it, um, I think that's really valuable for people to hear, that it was something, it was a project for you. Yeah. And I, and I say that too often. It's an everyday process. Yeah. You know, even now, I'm still making sure I say four things and making sure that I'm kinder to myself. Um, what I say always is that self-love takes work. Yeah. And for me, it's, it's quite the job to wake up every day and remember um, what I know now. And it's that I'm worthwhile in the way, in the way that I am. Yeah. So the way that I first got in touch with you is because you started the hashtag disabled and cute, which took off, right? Yeah. Disabled and cute. Yes. Disabled and cute. Uh, and it was an interesting phenomenon because something happened that happens all the time, which is that the hashtag got co-opted and yeah. you disappeared from it. I did rather quickly. <laughs> right. And um, I, I understand that that is something that they talk about a lot on black Twitter. Yep. Yeah. There's this um, thing where, you know, somebody of color will often make something that becomes popular and then it's sort of whitewashed or rather like co-opted, like you said, um, to fit a wider audience, I guess, but it does erase the people who created it. In my case, a lot of the issue was with people writing about the hashtag, but only including white people in their slideshows or um, just people with mobility aids. And so it kind of erases people like me who don't need mobility aids or people with invisible disabilities. And so it was like my job to kind of let people know hey, expand your worldview, even within the community, to include all of us, because that's who the hashtag is for. And also, you wanted it to be for uh, men and women and non-binary people, right? Yes, yes. Yeah. It's literally for everybody who identifies in some way as disabled. I wanted to make it clear that it wasn't a gendered thing, and that I wanted non-binary people to feel comfortable enough to share their stories, whether it was with picture or without. Right. And I was thinking of that because recently I saw someone on Twitter talking about how body positivity in general uh, has been co-opted from black women, perhaps. Yeah. um, Yvette Dion has written so much about it and it's so good because the point she's making is that not only are women of color left out of the movement entirely almost, but the way that people view fatness is, you know, somebody with a little bit of chub and like no real stomach, no real thighs, just kind of, you know, fatness is basically in the body, in the, in the body positivity movement is often viewed the same way that it is in fashion. So it's like a size eight or, you know, a size 10, but it never really goes further than that. Right. And I think that's um, definitely an issue within 
most communities, but yeah, in the in the body positivity movement, you don't really see disabled people either. Yeah. And it's the same thing that happened with me too, also. Yep. Yeah. I'm on, I mean, name, pick up a social justice hashtag and there's a black woman behind it, it seems like. <laughs> Absolutely. Almost. <laughs> and I, I think it's really interesting. I actually heard the phrase um, straight size passing about body positivity, the people who are co-opting it, which I'd never heard before. And uh, it really cuts to the chase, I think. And it's what you're saying, right? Like it's people who are just maybe a size eight or a size 10 saying that they embrace body positivity, which is, I guess, I guess fine, right? Yeah, it's fine. It's just the fact that like people need to kind of move over and let other voices be heard, I think, in those instances anyway, where it's like, you know that your body is standard and you know that there are people who could use the platform, um, you know, that are bigger than you and wouldn't be seen otherwise. Yeah. And I, I have a question around this, though, because... This actually applies to probably disabled and cute and body positivity and me too, which is, for one thing, you said that they get co-opted for a larger audience. I would probably argue that actually they get co-opted almost for a smaller audience, um, which is to say, you know, straight, cis, white people and not for the much larger audience they could be. Yeah, I guess what I meant was that they get, like, with larger audiences, I think in order for people to... Like not not water them down, but kind of reach um, publications in particular with with um, a big size audience. Right. And it's usually just right. um, really given to only white people. Just um, those are the people that you see in these movements sometimes. And I think that women of color in particular kind of get the short end of the stick in terms of representation in the body in the body positivity movement and in you know, disabled and cute and me too, et cetera. And I didn't mean to like correct you. I guess I was more pointing out for myself even that. Yeah, no, I see what you're saying. Yeah, that it's actually people think that they're bringing it to a larger audience, but they're actually narrowing it. Yeah. Squarespace makes beautiful products to help people with creative ideas succeed. You can turn your cool new idea into a website. I use Squarespace for my personal website, AnnaMarieCox.com. Look at it. It is using one of their templates. I think it looks lovely and professional, and it took very little doing on my part to make it look that way. You can publish content, sell products and services, promote your business, announce an upcoming project. Any way you want to showcase your work, you can make it with Squarespace. Squarespace empowers millions of people from individuals and local artists to entrepreneurs shaping the world's most iconic businesses to share their stories and create an impactful, stylish, and easy-to-manage online presence. Squarespace strives for excellence with beautiful templates created by world-class designers, powerful e-commerce functionality that lets you sell anything online, and analytics that will help you grow in real time. With 24-7 award-winning customer support, there's nothing to patch or upgrade ever. Check out squarespace.com slash friends for a free trial when you're ready to launch. And use the offer code FRIENDS to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Again, that's squarespace.com slash friends. For a free trial, and when you're ready to launch, use the offer code FRIENDS to save 10% off your first purchase. A dream is just a great idea that doesn't have a website yet. Make it a reality with Squarespace. Journalist Mehdi Hassan is known around the world for his televised takedowns of presidents and prime ministers. He hosts Upfront on Al Jazeera and is a columnist for The Intercept. And in his new podcast, Deconstructed, Mehdi unpacks a game-changing news event of the week while challenging the conventional wisdom. 
in a tight 30-minute package, a little quicker than what we do here. He starts his show with his take on one topic and what the mainstream news is getting wrong or what context is being missed. And then he goes into a deep analysis and conversation with his guest or guests of the week. And get this, his guests have included Judd Apatow, Bernie Sanders, and Hassan Minhaj. So he kind of covers the gamut, I would say, in terms of who you might be expecting. Um, It's everyone from comedians to politicians to, for instance, Stefan Clark's fiance. So you're going to hear from a lot of different people. And the show has covered such topics as the violence in Gaza from the perspective of Israeli activists against the occupation and, of course, police shootings, as through the eyes of the fiancé of Stephon Clark. Also, he's talked about the dangers of John Bolton with former diplomats. As a Brit and a Muslim, an immigrant based in Donald Trump's Washington, D.C., Mehdi Hassan gives a refreshingly provocative perspective on the ups and downs of American and global politics. Deconstructed is a show that cuts through political drivel and media misinformation to give you a straight take on one big news story of the week. It is out every Friday, just like this pod. You can listen and subscribe at theintercept.com slash deconstructed or on any podcast platform. I wonder, so I do think those things have all done some good though, right? I mean, Disabled and Cute and and Me Too and and Body Positivity. So my question is around, what do you think about the fact that, you know, able-bodied, you know, uh, white women can can use these things to feel better about themselves. Like if someone is in, because I I guess I'm asking this because I've talked to Alice Wong about how inspo porn, right? Mm, Inspiration porn. Yeah. And I'm wondering about how what it feels like from your side if someone says that they're inspired by you. Oh, I get that a lot. So, um, (laughs) (laughs) But I think for me... It's just that I, I go in knowing what my intent was. Uh-huh. Um, and so if able-bodied people love the hashtag and the work that I do, that's fantastic. But I know that, like, I'm not, I'm not here to make able-bodied people feel better about themselves because they don't have a body that's like mine. Right. If they do, that's on them. Um, it has really nothing to do, I think, with me because I know that what I'm doing is raising my voice and telling my stories for other people who you know, could relate or can empathize with experiences that are outside their own. So if people use my hashtag for inspiration porn, I can't stop them. I can just continue doing what I'm doing and preaching the message that I know that I've been, um, like, sent here, I guess, to preach. Because at the end of the day, no matter what you do online, people are going to look at disabled people as inspiration porn. So I can't kind of focus on those people. I just have to focus on the people that are, um, you know, get what I'm trying to say mm-hmm. and leave everybody else, you and, know, at the wayside. And it's sort of just on us. And I say us as an able-bodied person. I have a disability or a couple of them, but they're mental illnesses. So they're invisible, but I'm able-bodied. Um, and I would say straight size as well. And so when, if I am in the, per, in the, in, the position of, of looking at these hashtags and, and finding and, and wanting to respond to them and maybe finding inspiration, it's on me to realize that the point here isn't about, at least I'm not that. The point here is about celebrating all bodies. Yes. Right. Um, and that it shouldn't be comparison. It should just be, yay, we all have some, like everyone's body matters. 
Yes, absolutely. That's the goal. Yeah. Um, there's a certain theme in your work that I noticed that is, um, I guess I would call it complicated enthusiasms. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you love rom-coms, like we, you read at the beginning. You love lipstick. You love selfie filters and nostalgia. Mm-hmm. Now, you, you, you spot that theme in yourself right away. Yes, because I'm, I'm a very big lover of popular culture in general, like music, definitely Paramore and Demi Lovato. And so for me, it's like I don't want to be all doom and gloom. Mm-hmm. I, want, I want people to laugh and smile when they read my work, not just feel pensive and guilty or angry. So I think it's imperative for me as, you know, a creative person to give more than just my disability as um, subject matter for my pieces. Right. And that's something I mentioned to you when we were booking for the show, uh, is that there is this bind that if you're a disabled person or a person who represents some kind of marginalized identity and you write about it, you might get pigeonholed. Yes. So, Absolutely. yeah, how do you balance that? How, what, is, uh, what is your thinking around that? For me, I mean, it's definitely possible. For me, what I try to do is write across genres so that people can't pigeonhole me. Um, Like, I love fiction and nonfiction and poetry. And so I make sure that, like, people know, you know, I want to write more poetry. I want to publish more fiction. Um, I just, because I don't want to be pigeonholed. That's the thing that you're always worried about as a marginalized writer because people want so badly for you just to write about the same thing, but that's why I'm always like, hey, if you're down for me to write about Paramore, if you're down for me to write about Cheesecake or a TV show, um, <laughs> I can do that. And so I ended this job in 2017 in December, but I did write for Cliche Magazine about entertainment and TV shows and movies. And so that was really good for me so that I didn't feel like I was being stuck, you know, just writing about disability. So it was a good way for me to be like, okay, you can do that, but you can also write about Jane the Virgin and um, The Flash and all these other TV shows that you love and watch so people can see that you're worth more than just your thoughts and discussions on disability. Yeah, you actually wrote a piece about football for ESPNW. Yes, yes, football (laughs) and my family and the way that we kind of connect with um, football, how it keeps us together. I'm a, I'm a huge college football fan myself, actually. Um, and it definitely is the connection point for me and my father. Um, TCU, actually, is my team. Did you have a college yeah. team with Syracuse? Was that it? Yes, yeah, Syracuse. My grandmother loved um, Syracuse. Yeah. Um, but even then, though, I feel like... I, see, I guess I really identify with the idea of complicated enthusiasms because even just on football, like I, we and I can talk to you about how much I love football, but I also, yeah. in the back of my head, I also know all the problems with football right away. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I really like, I'm going to use that from now on um, to, to describe my work as complicated enthusiasm, because for me, it's like, I'm very much a proponent of critiquing the things that you love. I think that when you love something, it's okay to critique it because you know that it can grow to be better. And um, a lot of the the ways in which that I I view the world and the things that I love is through the lens of like, okay, this is fantastic, but it's missing this and it's missing that. And I think that in order to grow as a culture and especially with um, representation in media, we have to critique the things that we love so that we can hope that they'll be better. 
you know, one of the things also that I would say you have a complicated enthusiasm about is Twitter, um, social media. Yes. Uh, you are pro. A lot of people these days, especially like what's, you know, in the news about Facebook and Twitter having such a problem with, let's say, Nazis and abuse. You know, I think sort of the hot take these days is that these things are bad. Right? Yeah, absolutely. Well, for me, um, Twitter is like a trash can on fire, but <laughs> it's got all the things that you love inside the trash can. So, um, <laughs> like, it has its problems. And, it, like, you know, there's all these trolls and Nazis, and, and sometimes there's, place, there's times when you don't feel good because a tweet will go off and somebody will say something that's completely negative or... Um, just kind of ableist in your mentions just to see how you all respond. But Twitter has also helped my career immensely. Um, I wouldn't have gotten that those two pieces that ESPN had that editor not read my catapult piece that I read earlier. Um, and so for me, a lot of what Twitter has done is given me word of mouth. So people find me because they read a piece and then they're like oh hey we want to work with you because we saw this piece you wrote on twitter and also you know it's introduced me to some really amazing people like jody picalt and brie larson and jennifer pooley and danielle sepulveras like i think what's for me right now as it stands what is bad about twitter is not as um not as i don't want to say concerning i want to say that for me, the good outweighs the bad with Twitter, yeah. at least right now. And so um, my literary agent found me that way. Yeah. And I think that, like, you know what I mean? So I can't, I can't say that I'm against Twitter because Twitter has given me so much, at least a way to um, launch my career. Well, for me, I have found Twitter to be indispensable in expanding the representation of, of people that I know. Right. Absolutely. Same. Um, I am friends with people who I would just not be able to know really in my everyday life because I, you know, am a upper middle class white person who lives in Minneapolis. Um, so while I could seek out people of color and I I do, I try to, um, mm -hmm. it's not I actually know most of them through Twitter. Right. Yeah. Um, uh, my friend Parker Malloy, the trans activist, I, I know her through Twitter. Um, and I try very hard to use Twitter in that way. You know, like I follow Alice Wong. I follow the disability. Dis, I said, what, what is the disability? Disvisibility? Oh, her, her. Yeah, it's disability visibility. Yeah, disability visibility. Um, so I feel like like my wokeness has definitely been upped because of Twitter. And I think it can be, it's a really valuable tool, especially like you're saying for writers and editors. And you, you're on this show because I found you on Twitter. Yeah, I, mean, I was going to say, we can't be Twitter, so. <laughs> so it can't be all bad, I guess. No, absolutely not. It's one of those things where it's like, it's, it's good, mostly. But, you know, sometimes you'll, you'll run across a couple of days or weeks where it's like really bad. And I think it's just because even though it gives us a voice, it also gives a voice to, you know, Nazis and haters. And so that's the sort of negative impact of Twitter is that it's not only giving people who deserve it a voice, but people who can use that same sort of platform to promote, you know, evil and, and harm against people in um, minority communities 
Um, that's the problem with Twitter. But they seem to be making great strides in that direction in terms of them, you know, suspending Nazi accounts and not allowing them to create new ones and, and kind of taking the, you know, recently they added disability to their reports section, which means a lot to me because a lot of people have been in my mentions saying ableist things and calling me names that were based solely about my disability and Twitter wouldn't do anything about it because it wasn't in their terms of service. But now it is. And so I'm glad that they're finally making these strides to listen to users and, you know, listen to our feedback and, and, and implement it um, into their platform. Yeah, I actually didn't even realize that they had, they had added disability to their report system. Yeah, it they just did it, I think, like a couple of days ago. Oh, wow. Havenly is the most delightful way to design spaces in your home on any budget. Partner with an interior designer to create a beautiful space based on your unique style and space. Put those Pinterest boards to use. You can then buy what you love directly through Havenly's platform with access to hundreds of retailers and guaranteed best prices. Everyone could use a little help with designing a space in their home. I never thought of myself as someone that would use a designer, and I started using one actually a couple years ago and it's amazing what a difference it can make like you may think of yourself as i do as a fairly stylish person um, with an ability to put stuff together but people who do it for a living are going to be better at it than you uh my designer i i thought it would be really silly to bring in a designer for my office because it's an office what can you do with an office how could i screw it up if i did it myself well i brought in someone and I absolutely love what he did. And I can also say I wouldn't have thought of some of the things that he brought in. I have a cool like chandelier thing in the middle that's brass and it uses uh, refrigerator light uh, tubes rather than um, regular light bulbs. And it's just like cool and industrial. And I didn't even know such things existed. And my designer did because that's his job. And Havenly is a way to do it on a budget. Starting at just $79 per room, Havenly helps you every step of the way using your budget and your style to shape the design you want at a price you can afford because everyone deserves a beautiful living space. Start by taking the free Havenly style quiz. It's a fun way to learn your unique design style and it helps Havenly match you with the perfect designer to put together the perfect room. Turn that Pinterest board into reality. Try Havenly today by visiting havenly.com slash friends to get 25% off your design package. That is havenly.com, H-A-V-E-N-L-Y.com slash friends for 25% off your design package. Havenly.com slash friends. It does seem to me sometimes that disability is, is one of those categories that gets left out of representation. Yes. A lot Ooh, of the yes. time. Um, either we get left out of representation or we die by the end of the movie, which is always um, interesting to watch. You're just kind of waiting for, you know, you're just kind of waiting for the moment that the disabled person dies or they find out that they secretly weren't disabled at all ever and, and somebody was lying to them and now they can go live a life of freedom and joy. And so for me, especially with the collection, um, the pretty one, I wanted to make sure that there was joy and laughter within it because so often when we see stories about people with disabilities, it's the complete opposite and it's this like dark cloud over them all the time. And I was just like, no, I want to I wanna fight back against that and make sure that people know that, hey, we experience joy and happiness too. That 
puts me in mind of another quote of yours that I really uh, loved, which is, um, my body and I have always had a love-hate relationship. My body loves me, and I spend most of my days hating it. What caught me in that, you know, couple sentences is my body loves me. What did you mean by that? Um, well, I think because, then this isn't the case for all disabled people, because some people, some disabled people have, you know, different types of disabilities, so it's not the the same blanket way that it is for me. But for me, my body has always loved me. You know, it's always made sure that I'm alive and that I'm um, just being the best I can be despite what I've done to it. You know what I mean? Um, for me, it's just that my body has allowed me to to live even when I didn't want to, even when um, I didn't, you know, treat it the best way, you know, like feed it food and and kind of nurture it and, and that sort of way. It was always there for me when I was like, oh, I hate you and you're the worst. You know, either way, it just kept trekking on through, you know, my insults and the stuff that I would do to it. Um, and so that's what I mean when I say that my body loved me even when I hated it. But now you've... you've Yeah, but now I'm finally like, hey, sorry about all those years. Um, <laughs> it's a rom-com, actually. Yeah. I, think, I think you have a, you have a rom-com with your own body. I do, yes. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I'm just kind of like, all right, let's start over. Like, sorry about all that. You know, I appreciate you for, for what you are to me. And I'm going to give you the love and respect that you deserve. And I think that's a good place to end. I love that. Um, but I want to, and we may not use this, but I want to say something, which is that I am really, I, I feel bad about having assumed that you were in a wheelchair. And if you want to tell me that was bad of me, like if you want to tell me something about that, I would hear it. Okay. Well, um, I think I, it's, it's okay that you, it's not like, it's not okay. No, it's not okay. Did, and I'm actually, think, I'm saying like, I know it was wrong. Yeah. So I'm just saying that a lot of that though is again, the, the assumption is only because of what you see, you know, in our culture, because so much of disability is about mobility aids, you know, mm -hmm. in terms of representation. So the assumption is one that, like, I'm not necessarily surprised you made just because so often what you see is people with disabilities in wheelchairs. And so everybody just assumes that that's what it's like to be disabled and that anybody who isn't necessarily in a wheelchair or can walk part-time is somehow faking their disability and trying to gain um, a sort of system. So I think while it wasn't great, but I, I understand why you may have thought that I was a wheelchair user just because that's the way that yeah. we frame disability in our popular culture and in our culture and society as a whole. And I appreciate you being patient and gracious about that. So no problem. it's not on you. It shouldn't be on you. Um, but maybe we'll use that. Maybe we won't. But I, I did want to say, I did want to apologize, basically. Okay, well, thank you. Yeah, I, like I said, I totally understand and I, the and, assumption. And it's your, it's like, it. I understand that it's something wrong with our culture that you have to be the one to say something about it, right? Yeah. You have, it, that it, it shouldn't be on you. And, and I think, too, I think, well, you know, now that you know. So I think you can use this as a, yeah. as a sort of thing where, like, the next time you see someone kind of step out of line in that way, you can be like, hey, well, you know, all disabled people aren't wheelchair users. And I know people who, you know, who aren't wheelchair users and don't necessarily need mobility aids and they're still disabled and it still matters. Because I think 
those and so those sort of messages are important, particularly for people with invisible disabilities as well, because so often we don't even recognize people who aren't in um, mobility, who aren't users of mobility aids in the community and outside of it because we're so used to seeing disability being one thing. Right. I'll ask you about that, too, which is that something like, so I have a mental illness. I have a couple, actually. Um, I'm an alcoholic and I have bipolar disorder. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I talked to Alice, she said, you're one of us. She was like, you are. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I agree. Yes, you are. I think. Because <laughs> <laughs> you, you know where I was going with it. Yeah, yep. you are. I think that we, we need to make sure that we make room for people with invisible disabilities because um, they're one of us, too. And they're fighting, you know, it's not the same fight that we're fighting, but it's a fight nonetheless. And so for me. Invisible, invisible disabilities matter just as much as physical disabilities. One is not better than the other or worse than the other just because. Um, so that's why I was very clear, you know, with my hashtag, like everybody can use this. People with um, mental um, disabilities, invisible disabilities, physical disabilities, people. There are also people who have invisible physical disabilities. Like you can't see that they have them, but, you know, their yeah. disabilities affect their body. So... I'm just, I'm a firm believer that, that absolutely invisible disabilities matter. And you are one of us if you, if you want to claim that label. I, I was going to ask you if you think maybe it's important for people like me to do that. Nor- I do. Yeah. Um, if you feel comfortable. I don't want to. I do. I do. Yeah. I, I think if I, if I think in order to be true to my feelings about justice, you know, my ideals, I shouldn't say feelings, in, in order to be true to what I hold up as my ideals about social justice, yeah, I should probably claim it. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I always say, too, and I say this in the book, um, I mention a lot of able-bodied people without chronic illness or without invisible illness because there are people who are able-bodied who are still disabled because they have invisible disabilities. And so it was very important for me to note that, you know, throughout the book. And, and now I'm being better about, it, better about noting it in my separate work, because I think that that's, um, I think that that's very important. So I have one more thing. This is all really, I really appreciate your time, by the way, on this. This is. Oh, I'm so excited to be on. No, this is, this is fantastic stuff. Um, and the other thing I wanted to ask, oh, um, so in talking, so in telling you, I felt bad about assuming you're a wheelchair and that I wanted to apologize for it, not just go around feeling guilty about it. Um, I wanted to try and make, correct the mistake and, and do better. No, I appreciate that. Well, one of the things I try to tell people, I try to, you know, get people who listen to my show, who I think, I think of my audience is mostly to like well-meaning white people. <laughs> um, <laughs> that's a huge portion of it, at least. Discomfort is hard when you're yes. a privileged person, right? And I think what keeps a lot of privileged people from reaching out to people unlike themselves is the fear that they're going to say or do something wrong. Yeah. And I wonder, do you think, and, but what I've discovered is you should, is it's worth it to try? Yes, absolutely. And on and your, I, your side, would you, you say that is true? I do, yes. I, I believe that to be true in every sort of aspect of our culture. In terms of, I was just talking about this in terms of the fashion industry. I think that, you know, we don't design enough clothes for people with disabilities outside of, you know, Tommy Hilfiger and Cat and Jack, which is a, um, a line for... At Target, Kids right? with disabilities. And yeah, at Target. Yeah. And then there's Zappos and 
um, a couple others, but I think that the reason that there are so little is because people are afraid to try and they're afraid of disappointing, you know, people and they're just, and there's that sort of fear. And I think what we have to do is make sure that we combat that fear or we kind of use it to motivate us to try something new. And I think discomfort is is bound to happen in any sort of situation that you're in, especially from a privileged point of view. But you just kind of have to use that as a motivation for you to to make sure that you're the best ver- the best version of yourself that you can be. And always remember that empathy is very important and respect as well. Yeah, it just seems to me that if you're going to have, let's say, people call in your life, if you're going to have non-binary people in your life, if you're going to have trans people in your life, uh, if you're going to have disabled people in your life, you are probably going to say something that is offensive to them at some point. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and it's just like one of the things I think a lot of white people are scared to make that mistake. So they just don't make friends. Right. They just they, mm-hmm. they just but I think if in that way that they're they're shutting off so much of their worldview, I think that you're they're missing out on a lot of different people that could enrich their lives because they're afraid of making a mistake. Like all of my friends at one point, and I'm sure I've done this to them as well, have said something that wasn't, you know, the best way to say it. But, you know, talking about it and working through it was what kept, you know, those friendships going and is what kept us you know, able to learn for the next time, you know what I mean? Like, learn where boundaries are. I think that we we don't talk enough about boundaries in platonic relationships, and I think that there, there are boundaries for people, but you only know them um, when you cross them or when you get to that line. So it's important that you, you know, go ahead and take the leap and just see where you land and, you know, genuinely apologize if you make a mistake and move on from it. Yeah. I think there's a lot more resilience there than um, most privileged people realize because you have to be resilient if you're a marginalized person. Like you you, do. You don't have an option. Yeah. Yeah. The the graciousness that's there is is non-negotiable in a way. Like, um, but anyway, I do appreciate your being gracious with me. Um, And uh, I look forward to your book. That sounds, Thank you so sounds much. Like it's I'm so excited in. about it. And when I'm we'll, almost done writing it. <laughs> uh, and it'll be out in spring 2019? Yes, via Adria Books. All right, we'll have to have you back on. Yes, please. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you. So when it comes to your health, brushing your teeth is one of the most important parts of your day. It is right up there with eating right and getting exercise. You do it every day and it's for your health and you may not even realize how important it is, but it's important and Quip knows that. They've combined dentistry and design to make a better electric toothbrush. Quip is the new electric toothbrush that packs just the right amount of vibration into a slimmer design at a fraction of the cost of bulkier traditional electric brushes. And Quip helps you brush. It gives you guiding pulses that alert you when to switch sides, making brushing the right amount of effortless. Quip also comes with a mount that suctions right to your mirror and unsticks to use as a cover for hygienic travel anywhere, whether it's going in your gym bag or your carry-on. And because the thing that cleans your mouth should also be clean, Quip's subscription plan refreshes your brush on a dentist-recommended schedule, delivering a new brush head every three months for just $5, and that includes free shipping worldwide. Quip is backed by a network of over 10,000 dentist professionals, including dentists, hygienists, and dental students. Most toothbrushes don't get named one of Time Magazine's best inventions of the year, but Quip did. And find out for yourself why. Quip starts at just $25, and if you go to getquip.com slash friends right now, you'll get at your first refill pack free with a Quip electric toothbrush. Quip starts at just $25, and if you go to getquip.com slash friends right now, 
you'll get your first refill pack for free with a Quip electric toothbrush. That's your first refill pack for free at getquip.com slash friends. That is G-E-T-Q-U-I-P dot com slash friends. And welcome back. This is a show that's a conversation not just between me and a guest, but also between me and you guys. I, (laughs) me, and actually, let me correct myself, me and you all, or as my relatives like to say, y'all. This is a show in which I want to welcome people to talk about their own experience with the intersection of privilege and politics and personal relationships. So please write. Uh, you can write to withfriendslikepod at gmail.com. Again, that's withfriendslikepod at gmail.com. And right now, the first letter of this season, Crooked contributor Aaron Ryan is going to help me tackle a question about disagreeing about politics with your romantic partner. Here it is. Hi, Anna. I have a sticky conversation that I've been trying to navigate for a while now. It's about differing views on liberalism that my partner and I have, an argument we've been navigating for the past three years. I believe strongly that we can focus on what he calls social issues, gun control, DACA, fair criminal justice reform, without losing sight of big picture reforms like campaign finance. He believes that we've given up too much ground there and that the social issues I put faith in are just tokens given to distract us. It's gotten to the point where we can't talk about a political issue I feel strongly excited about without getting a yeah, but from him. This is definitely turning into a complaint on a larger conversation in our relationship, but it still does beg the question of how to navigate disagreements in party lines inside of a close relationship. He thinks I lose the forest for the trees, and I think he forgets that the forest is made up of trees. This is a silly metaphor that he uses in arguments. Sorry. I can't figure out how to make him understand that you can't fight for only one and expect to solve these other giant problems. Please help. What I love about this question is that there's obviously a lot more going on. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It is kind of a like a coloring book question. You're like, what is what is this supposed to be? What is this supposed to be? But yeah, there is a lot more going on than than what we can tell initially. Yeah. And I mean, there's there's a part of me that wants to address that because I have my own experience in a relationship, you know, my husband and I don't agree on things. Uh, we used to not agree on a lot of things. Uh, and he's sort of, he's wound up coming a little bit closer to my views. Although I guess this will be part of my answer to her is that I don't think I had anything to do with that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that it depends on what sort of personality a person has. I know that I am not somebody who's convinced of things. I have to, con- I have to believe in my head that I'm coming to them on my own. You know what I mean? Like, um, I have to believe that I, I can be given a set of facts, but if I feel like I'm being pushed towards something, then I will I'll resist. Um, so I need to I need to make it seem to myself like I've I've accepted it my on, on my own. Um, I you know, I'm a real pushy person uh, when it comes to political opinions, and so typically when I've gotten into it with men I've dated. Um, usually I just kind of keep harping on something until they agree with me. (laughs) (laughs) So you date guys who are not like you. Um, I have in the past dated people who are not like me. There are certain issues that are, that are complete, like. They're deal breakers. Yeah, they're they're, deal breakers, I would say. Deal breakers. I don't think I could date somebody who is pro-life, um, pro-life in that he believes that abortion should be illegal. I couldn't, couldn't date somebody like that. I couldn't date somebody who, um, was, 
kind of a, a kind of pre-sexual revolution type person. Um, but I have dated people who disagree with me. I've dated people who are kind of more toward the libertarian end of things. Um, and usually what happens when we when we get to issues that are just completely sticky is that we just agree to continue to discuss it. And it's not like a matter of trying to get someone to the place that I'm at. Like I, like here's an, here's an example. Um, I think I was, I was having a debate with somebody about, I think we were talking about uh, guns and this person didn't agree with me about um, guns, doesn't think that the guns should be regulated at all. And instead of getting angry and deciding that the conversation had to end, we just kind of made it an ongoing conversation. And in the process of having that conversation with that person, I learned a lot about why people on that side of the issue believe what they believe. And I think trying to get to a point where you've won an argument kind of shuts down learning in a, in a way. I, I totally agree. And I also, I mean, like part of me was like looking at this question and thinking about my own experience and wondering, like, how important is it in a relationship to have these discussions or these fights if they turn into fights? Mm-hmm. And I mean, I, I think, you know, there's part of me that wants to say to her, well, at least you must agree on some larger issues. Like if you think this is if this is an intra left fight mm-hmm. that you're having with mm-hmm. your significant other, like lucky you, mm-hmm. <laughs> I think, you know, I mean, it means like you've got some big picture values that you agree on. Yeah. Uh, and then the other thing I would say is that like I may be more like you in that I I most for the most part cannot argue for fun, if that makes sense. Yeah. Like. It is deadly serious to me if I'm going to talk about politics, mm-hmm. right? Like, if I'm going to have a debate with you about ideas, like, I can't just, like, leave it, as- then leave it aside. Yeah. You know, um, and that's, I think, for mostly to his credit, my husband's a little bit the same way. And so we just had to stop talking about politics. Yeah. Entirely. Well, you know, here's that's an interesting point that you raise because it could be that these two people argue differently. That one yes. person is having fun arguing and the other person is really not having fun arguing. So maybe they should take a step back and say, you know, these arguments are not actually fun for me. And also the, a phrase that, that stood out in the question was... Um, I feel strong. Uh, we can't talk about a political issue. I feel strongly excited about without getting a yeah, but from him. Yeah. Yeah. But I heard. yeah, but is a really dismissive phrase. And I feel like if you just changed it to the improv, yes. And or yes, I would like to add, you know, instead of inst- I think the but word kind of makes it seem as though the conversation like she was wrong. Yeah. Yeah. But. Yeah, but be quiet. Yeah, yeah. It sounds but. like mansplaining, basically. Yeah, it, it sounds like a, a big well, actually. Exactly. You know, it's a, and and that yeah, I, I that jumped out at me too, and it's a little concerning. Like, I feel like is this really about an argument about liberal policies and priorities, or is this someone like needing to assert control in a relationship? You know, mm-hmm. and we don't know. <laughs> and I don't want to get too far into the you know, dynamics of this particular relationship, because this is a question I get a lot from people. Mm -hmm. But I think we've hit on some really good, like kind of overarching best practices. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, Yeah, I think determining whether or not is is fighting fun for you. And like, I I don't think that that's abundantly clear initially when you're first with somebody or as your relationship develops. That's just not a question that people tend to ask themselves. And I think that that kind of disparity results in a lot of of problems in people's long-term relationships. 
Yeah, I agree. And then also just ask yourself, how important is this particular, you know, debate to me right now? I think for me, as a, someone who takes arguing really seriously, like I always want to be like, no, well, this is really, really important. But then like in the moment right now, is this what I want to be spending my energy on, <laughs> you know, or do I have other priorities in this relationship that I can focus on? Like if you're in a place with a relationship where this is the only thing you're arguing about, well, then have at it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like you, I would celebrate that relationship. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah, I'm I'm also a big proponent of use of like talking from the same source material because a lot of times when yeah. I've I've gotten into to debates with people and it just has felt like a waste of time, it's because we're both referencing things that the other person hasn't read or that the other person doesn't isn't familiar with. So I think maybe one thing that that might be effective for this couple is if they are talking about an issue that, you know, let's say that that DACA, let's say they want to they want to talk about DACA and uh, and she finds an article that talks about how DACA is tied to larger structural issues uh, and how how the economic impact of immigration and how it, it matters like on a larger scale than just individual people's lives, although indiv- individual people's lives do matter. And it's not, a, it's not an identity issue. Right. It's not an identity yeah. issue. Like, so she could she could find something that that kind of supports her point of view and and say like, oh, I thought this article is really interesting. I wonder what your res- I'm curious what your response is to this. And, you know, I wonder, have you read anything that supports, you know, the opposite? And then they both could kind of read the same source material and talk from there rather than talking past each other. And I think that maybe gets us to a kind of final wrapping up point on this, which is uh, a guideline that I talk a lot about on the show, which is that in some ways, if you really want to hear someone, you have to give up on convincing them. Yeah. You have to like be okay with not ending at a point that you are in agreement on, mm-hmm. you know, like you can, if you're, cause if you're seeking to agree, you're, I don't know if you necessarily hear everything the other person has to say. Yeah. So, it, it, I think that the the way to start is to start with the same source material and the way to kind of the way direction you want to go is not to agree with each other, but to have fully heard each other. I think that is a really great point. <laughs> <laughs> I fully heard you. <laughs> Aaron, did I hear you as you wanted to be heard? That's actually something that um, we learned in, in rehab was, did I hear you as you wanted to be heard? Oh, that's a, it's a very good, uh, it's a very good adage. It is, um, you know, I, people can borrow it. It's a little psychotherapy-ish, right? But you know, that can be, that therapy talk can be useful. Therapy is popular for a reason. Yes, exactly. All right. Uh, Thank you so much, Erin. I understand that I will be seeing or rather hearing more from you in the future. Is that is that correct? That is correct. I am developing a female focused pod with Crooked Media and uh, we're working on it right now and and there'll be more coming soon. All right. I can't wait. I can't wait either. Thank you so much for having me. And that is it for the show. Thank you so much for listening. And I have to tell you that as a recovering perfectionist, this episode has been particularly challenging. Uh, It's been a a time of particular personal growth and a, a gloriously imperfect experience, but aren't they all? And for those super fans listening, have yourself a gloriously imperfect week. And we'll be back next Friday with a new episode of With Friends Like These. 
Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. Your business was humming, but now you're falling behind. Your teams are buried in manual work, tasks are taking forever to complete, and getting one source of truth is like pulling teeth. If this is you, then you should know these three numbers, 37,000. That's the number of businesses that have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, streamlining accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. One, because your business is one of a kind. Get a customized solution for all your key performance indicators in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. With NetSuite, it's everything you need to grow, all in one place. Get your business back to the greatness where it belongs. Learn more at netsuite.com slash podcast 25.